This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, you'll hear from Glenna Thompson of Symbiosis Wines about her part in this week's At Her Table events. Michelle Barrera created At Her Table. Women have always fed the world, and so that's where the food and beverage industry comes from and why she focused on that. Also, you'll explore the environmental advantages of utilizing windfall and fire-damaged trees to mill beautiful wood for reuse. We'll take things that are stormed down, dead, dying disease, being lot cleared, or they're damaging the houses or sidewalks or things that have to come down. Those are a source of our materials. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, March 6th, 2023. I'm Carol Tangeman. The Morro Bay Rotary Club is organizing a local fundraising campaign for earthquake victims in Turkey and Syria. They're having an event tomorrow in Morro Bay. Hello, I'm Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we are joined by John Solu, who is the president of the Morro Bay Rotary Club, originally from Turkey and engaged in some uh, earthquake relief in the region. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, very happy to have you here. It's very timely because not only of the need of the people in, in Turkey and Syria, but some events that you have coming up. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are from and, and how you got to be where you are. Well, I'm originally from Turkey, is the new pronunciation of Turkey now. And I was born there in the capital of uh, Ankara, Turkey. And I moved here to United States when I was 12 years old. And I've been here since 1969. The day we landed at JFK Airport in New York is the day that Neil Armstrong was walking on the moon in 1969. So uh, so that's a memorable entrance to the to our country. And I've been here ever since 1969. Um, I lived in numerous areas. I originally lived in Cleveland, Ohio for approximately 10 years. Went to college there at Kent State University and then moved to Hawaii, and then moved to the Central Coast, and I've been here in hospitality, hotel business, pretty much my whole career, till I just recently retired. An interesting connection, and sort of why we're here today, uh, we're both Rotarians, um, and recently uh, there was an announcement at my Rotary Club here in San Luis Obispo of a way to donate money and other uh, things, useful things, to earthquake survivors in Turkey and elsewhere, like Syria, and I was given your name as a connection. Tell us about that connection and what you're trying to do. Well, what I started approximately three and a half, four weeks ago, a couple days after the earthquakes happened, and, and it happened in an area where I have a lot of relatives and friends. Thank God that they're all in living and struggling right now as they have been probably uh, for the last 20 some days. And there's some that were able to move back to their apartments and some they have not and they're still living in their cars in the cold and the snow. And so I decided to contact a Rotary Club in Ankara, Turkey, which is the capital of Turkey and talk to the district governor there and talk to him about philosophy of things they might need and so forth. And I basically began to learn that the needs change every day in that part of the world right now based on what's going on. And they just had another earthquake. Numerous people died then um, because people went back in their apartments and their apartments were not 100% safe anymore. But nonetheless, so uh, I began this campaign on our morobayrotary.org website uh, where people can contribute money via their 
credit card or mail checks directly to our PO box to the foundation. So this will be a tax deductible event for those that are making contributions to the foundation. And the foundation money that is sent is strictly restricted to be sent to the earthquake areas. When you say foundation, which foundation? The Morro Bay, uh, Morro Bay Rotary okay, Foundation. Great, great. Uh, so there's the two companies. Your, your nonprofit arm. Yeah, our nonprofit arm. Mm-hmm. And the monies are designated to go directly to the Ankara Turkey Rotary, where it would go directly into their bank account. They over there will make the decisions as if they need blankets, if they need tents, if they need gloves, if they need shoes, because it's changing every day. And people are sending things there that sometimes are overwhelmed and they don't need as many. So I'm going to have them make those decisions. And right now I'm accumulating that money in the bank. At least in this instance, it's um, given the circumstances, it's better to to donate cash and then the the Rotarians there use it as per uh, every need, which every day's need, which changes. Correct. And so that program has started. And then we have, uh, since then, have decided to do a couple more events coming up in the next couple of weeks. One of them is Tuesday. Uh, Tell us about that. On March 7th, we'll have a benefit that we're going to be doing at a bookstore called the Coles Bookstore in downtown Morro Bay on Main Street. It is basically finger food, getting together. And basically, I will be there to answer any questions regarding any updates that are happening in Turkey, because I'm on a weekly conference call with the Rotary Clubs in Turkey on, on a Saturday morning. We do Zoom calls updating each other. So I will be updating that. At the same time, I have relatives that live there that I talk to constantly and friends there that talk to constantly of things that they might need. So this event that we're going to be holding is basically finger foods donated by a restaurant called The Great Leaf in Morro Bay. It's a Mediterranean restaurant. We'll be doing it at the Coles Bookstore and we'll have some entertainment on that day. And it's from 4 p.m. to 6.30 on the 7th. And public is welcome. If there's no charge, but we're doing this, hopefully, collecting donations from everybody. Now, if my memory serves, based on our earlier conversation, there's two potential recipients for the funds raised on that day, Correct. not just Turkey, but also Syria? Correct. So there's a big challenge for Syria right now. There is no Rotary Club in Syria. The Turkish government will not allow the Rotary District to send any funds to Syria or any aid to Syria. And that's kind of true with the Lebanese Rotarians and also Israeli, Jordanian, and the Egyptian Rotarians. Uh, The government will not allow any funding to be sent to that area. But I did find an organization in Santa Barbara, believe it or not. It's the, the relief group that's down there that is giving funding to Doctors Without Borders, and they're funding them. So I will be sending half of the proceeds that we collect on 7th of March directly to uh, Direct Relief in Santa Barbara, and they will go ahead, either funnel the money there or purchase things that the doctors might be needing in Syria. So if we collect $1,000, they'll get 500 and the Turkish Rotary in Ankara will get the other 500 That's the only thing that we're doing that's kind of separated. I think people need to know more the context of Rotary, why Rotary. All service clubs are good, Lions, Kiwanis, others. They have a unique international presence and a respect within the international community, not only for Rotary and its history, but specifically for the Polio Plus program 
where it used to be hundreds of thousands of cases worldwide every year, and now there's just a handful in a couple of countries. And so I think Rotary has acquired the skills and the reputation to get things done, even maybe going around government sometimes and all the red tape and the customs uh, enforcement and stuff, but but also to areas where um, people are in need, but there's no rotary or the government is hostile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that the reputation of the Syrian government is, is not good, uh, the current government. And so to me, it's, it's just um, mind-blowing in a good way. <clears throat> this is a tool that we have available. And I have to tell you, on one of my Saturday Zoom calls that I had with some of the Rotarians in Turkey is that they are sneaking things into Syria just to get things into Syria. This is not a Turkey thing. This is not a Syria thing. This is a humanitarian aid that we're doing. And and, and think about it. All the monies I have collected so far, all the monies I'm going to try to collect from now till the end is not really f- for my benefit. It's a humanitarian benefit. It's it's chaos happening there. They I, they just announced 206,000 buildings in just in Turkey that is not livable anymore. And those buildings has anywhere between 12 to 25 apartments, families living in each one of those buildings. Where are these people living now? They're living on the streets and tents and and, and, and containers. To remind everybody that I am Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today we're joined by John Solu, who is um, the president of the Morro Bay Rotary Club and coordinating a, an active current uh, fundraising campaign to for earthquake relief in uh, Turkey and elsewhere. Uh, could we talk a little bit about the circumstances in Turkey, where the worst of it is, why it was particularly bad, uh, and makes it so significant? Well, uh, there are three big cities that got affected. One city is basically at the border of uh, Syria. It's called a city called Hatay. Um, it had a population of 275,000 people. Majority of them were refugees living uh, that basically escaped the war from Syria because Turkey accepted over four and a half million refugees to Turkey. And that has become a center for uh, refugees to pass through. Unfortunately, those people that were escaping the war went into another horror. Is, is, uh, the city of Hatay, when you look at pictures, is, is basically has non-existent anymore. Then there was another city called Gaziantep, which is another city that is uh, very well known for copper, building, making copper plates and so forth. It's all handmade things, and that's another city that has gotten devastated. And then there's another city called Kahraman Marash, which is all basically in that southeastern Turkey bordering Syria and Iraq, uh, which has been constant battle between the Kurdish and the Turks and the Syrians trying to get away from their government coming over across. It's it's chaos down there. I think even the Russians were in there too, or maybe the Russians were in there. And and one of the the biggest air force bases also is in in that part. Uh, U.S. Air Force Base is in that area. It's called Injirlik. Air Force Base, which a lot of Amer- there's a lot of big American presence in that area also. And the earthquake was very strong, and I think you had told me it was uh, 
near the surface because earthquakes have a, their own personality. Correct. Uh, where the uh, epicenter is, how deep in the earth, but this was fairly close to the surface? Correct. It was within uh, five kilometers to the surface, which is about three miles. It's 7.8, and there was another one for 7.5, and there was a lot of aftershocks at sixes. And basically, they're saying some of the areas shifted almost three meters. Oh, boy. That's like 10, you know, 10 feet moving from one direction to another. Wow. And some of these cities. So I don't know if any building codes would have survived that. Uh, right. That is another issue that's out there right now, is that how these some of these buildings were built in Turkey as well as in Syria. I, it's safe to assume or to opine that the depth of the tragedy, uh, recent tragedy, is much greater than the governments of Turkey or of Syria could handle, even if in the best of worlds. Oh, yeah. I, I, this is could become one of the worst humanitarian disasters in, in the last 10, 20, 30, 40, whatever centuries. It is a devastating thing. It's a devastating thing to the government. There's a lot of blame going on with the government of Turkey now and who's to blame for what, how were the buildings built, what code they were used, and so forth. On top of all of that, there's a big election going on in May in Turkey, which potentially could get postponed. It's unconstitutional, but it could happen. Uh, if that happens, there could be a change in regime or not change in regime. And so there's a lot of upheaval going on in that part of the world right now. Would you describe Turkey as a first world country? Or I mean, I don't know if it's a meaningful term, but they're fairly well developed infrastructure, government, long history, pretty right. good economy. Right. In Tur- Turkey at one time was the 12th largest economy. I think it's down to number 17 or 18 after the COVID situation. There are parts of the country you would think that you're in a Los Angeles or Hollywood. Uh, Istanbul is, you know, there's the old Istanbul and the new Istanbul. There's the new Ankara, old Ankara, and there's the Mediterranean side there that people are going there vacationing from all over the world. Unfortunately, the area where all of this happened, this earthquake was in probably the poorest part of the country. And this would be the basically the east? The east part, southeast, basically. Were, were there ancient ruins and archaeological treasures that were affected? Well, I have a personal thing that I have to tell you. A, a year and a half ago, I have four boys. I took two of my boys and my wife. We rented a van in Istanbul, and we went down agency to the Mediterranean over to, to where this earthquake took place to go visit all my relatives. And we actually went to all the ruins that were taking place there. They found the oldest temple in the world. 14,000 years ago, it's called Gubekli Tepe. It's in this part of the world. And my relatives basically told me that is now has been buried underground after the earthquake. You know, fortunate for me and my family that we were down there seeing all of this. But it is a very ancient, very historical part of the world. And, and unfortunately, it's one of the poorest part of the country. One thing we need to reemphasize, again, self-declaring as a long-time Rotarian, that Rotary, um, how it operates and everything else, if you give money to a cause, there's no service charge. There's no administrative fee. It's 100%. If you contribute a dollar uh, here, a dollar winds up in a Turkish Rotary Club bank account, plus there's no uh, customs involved or government basically finagling. Governments very often are partners, as they have been in Polio Plus, but groups like Rotary are nimble enough. I love that word, 
to pivot and turn and be uh, timely and, and precise mm-hmm. with what they do with it. No corruption, no red tape, period. That is the reason, main reason, and I get that question asked to me numerous times to people that are making donations to us asking me if there's going to be any administrative fees. The only fee that's going to be there is a $35 bank transfer fee from Morro Bay to Ankara, Turkey. It's $35. And I told them that I personally will be paying that myself. (laughs) Uh, let's, uh, as we wind up here, let's talk about once more the purpose of what you're doing. And uh, at least I know there's another event, I think, on the 15th. Let's, Correct. let's go there. Correct. So I'll just t- go back and touch on the one on the 7th again. It's for uh, at the Coles Bookstore from 4 to 6.30. It's both for Turkey and Syria. Earthquake benefit for the tragedy that took place Tuesday, Tuesday. 4 to 6.30. Weather's supposed to be nice, beautiful, and be great for people to come and visit Morro Bay that afternoon. Just Donate anything you can. There is no charge for coming to the event. Great. And we will have some entertainment. We'll have some soft drinks and so forth. The food is provided by Great Leaf Restaurant. And on the 15th, on a quarterly basis, Rotary Club of Morro Bay does a drive through barbecue for tri-tip. That tri-tip is $55. That includes salad for six people, beans, loaf of garlic bread, dessert, and a slab of tri-tip that's provided by Spencer's in Morro Bay. And we basically take that and use that fund, the net proceeds of that goes directly to service agencies around the county. But this event that we're doing on the 15th, the board of directors have voted that any net proceeds will go directly to the Rotary Club in Turkey from the Rotary Club of Morro Bay Foundation. You can donate if you can't come to the event on the 7th. You can go into morrobayrotary.org. On the left-hand side, there's a button where you can go in and donate money if you want to. If you want to purchase a tri-tip, you go on to, the, again, to the morrowbay.org website. On the right-hand side, you can actually purchase this thing. On the 15th, you have to come to Carla's Kitchen on Beach Street in Morro Bay, do a drive through between 5 and 6, pick up your meal, and go home and have it with your family. I'm hungry. Yeah. For $55, you can feed four to six people. Awesome. Yeah, I've already got it on my calendar. I'd like to remind everyone that I am Brian Reynolds for Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Today, we were joined by John Solu, president of the Morro Bay Rotary Club, discussing fundraising that he and his club are engaged in to provide earthquake relief for Turkey and Syria. I'm so excited. Thank you for sharing today. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. This is KCBX Public Radio. You're listening to Issues and Ideas. Up next, Betsy Nash, the grape nut, shares a conversation with Glenna Thompson of Symbiosis Wines about her journey to become a winemaker in Paso Robles. Thompson is taking part in this week's event at her table. I'm talking with Glenna Thompson, uh, the winemaker at Symbiosis Wines in downtown Paso Robles. She and other women winemakers and restaurant owners are part of an amazing array of events this week called At Her Table. Uh, since Glenna is teaching a class on aromas, I asked her to meet with me and give me a, <clears throat> a taste sorry, of what she'll be teaching. So welcome. Hi, good to meet you. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. I'm so glad you are. You uh, asked me how I found you. Yeah, I'm curious because no one finds me. Well, a few people do. I'll let you explain about your winery, but 
I saw that you were going to teach a class on aromas. There are a lot of things I might smell but not be able to articulate what they are. So I thought I'd just love talking to you about that. You're definitely not the only person who feels they have that issue. And in my experience, people think they're not good at it, but they're really better than they realize they are. I'm and, always happy to hear that. But as far as aromas go, I really feel that it's a skill, not a talent. And so there oh. are a couple of components to that. One is interest level. If you're not interested, you're never going to be good at it. Mm. But the other one is just practice and thinking about it and this ridiculously overused word, mindfulness. Mm -hmm. First, I want to find out about the name symbiosis. Mm. It's been a long time since I had a science class. So symbiosis or symbiosis, which is how I usually say oh. it, is two or more things living together, creating something new. So there's a whole spectrum of symbiotic relationships, everything from parasitism to mutualism, oh. where the two things that live together need each other. So we have a lot of parallels in our world, food and wine, mm. earth and sun and plants, all those kind of things. But the reason I'm called symbiosis is I spent many years as a researcher before I started making wine in microbiology. I was doing a PhD in how microbes establish symbiotic relationships. And so the chemical cues and how they talk to each other, even though they don't have brains or mouths or anything Right, like right. So when I started making wine and started thinking, what am I going to call myself? Jumping donkey, spinning cat, happy dog, all these ridiculous names that everyone has. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and I was really stressed out about it. Mm. And then I woke up one day and just went, oh, duh, what did you spend all those years doing? So... That's why I'm called symbiosis. I love it. So my particular microbiology was um, environmental microbiology, not medical. And so I worked on things like how microbes talk to each other, mm -hmm. what proteins they use to absorb chemicals from the environment. Oh. And bioluminescence is a big one, mm -hmm. too. Sure. Um, you might see that picture of a squid over on my wall there, yep. the blue guy. He harbors bioluminescent bacteria. Oh, that's interesting. So it's okay. a symbiosis where the environmental cues mm -hmm. tell the bacteria how much to light up, and then the squid can match the environmental light level, and the prey that it's trying to catch don't see it. Oh, my gosh. So it's a really complicated, at least theoretically, right. relationship. Right. So, you know, biology is really cool and fascinating. <laughs> it's not hard to imagine how your background would then lend itself to winemaking, in my estimation. I know people talk about, well, it's an art as well as a, a skill or a science, and I've always loved the um, symbiosis, if you will, of those <laughs> two terms and those two realms. Uh, one of my favorite books while I was uh, at my talk show 30 years ago was called um, Art and Physics, and it talked about how art tended to change just as at the same time physics changed. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a coincidence that Picasso and Einstein were around the same time. You know, Einstein says everything happens at once and you look at a Picasso painting of a woman and everything's happening at once. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's really, we, we view the world because of both physics or science and because of art. Especially when you talk about 
how the proteins speak to the soil or speak to the roots of something like that. That's, that's the part that's so fascinating to me. Different soils add different minerality, I guess, to the wine. I know that you use grapes from both the east and west of the 101. And on your website, it says something about that being different. Well, for a long time, before we had 11 AVAs in Paso, mm -hmm. we had the east side and the west side. True. And there was this big rivalry between the two sides. Mm. And the west side wanted to be the west side. And the east side said, no, let's all be Paso. <laughs> Because there was this perception that the east side was lower quality, mm. which I don't believe is true at all. I think that that happened because there were some really big mass production right. vineyards out there. Right. And so it's seen as this whole place that's like that. But it's nothing like that. Yeah. I remember there, when our Sierra was built mm -hmm. and it looked like all of a sudden we were going to be Napa. Well, oh, my gosh. Now. It was it was so huge. <laughs> yeah. Well, to a degree, we certainly story, are. Though. Yeah. You're listening to The Grape Nut on public radio for the Central Coast, KCBX. And I'm having a fascinating conversation with Glenna Thompson of Symbiosis Wines and Paso Robles. So I'm super eco-friendly, green. I'm ridiculously energy conscious, careful about water, things like that. So I showed you a few minutes ago the barrels that I need to wash. Right. I have a bin that I collect the water in, and then I take it home and use it in my yard. It's perfect. And it's partly because I'm here in the city, um, and, you know, most people just shoot the, everything around with water yeah. and the water goes down into the groundwater and it stays on their property. But it's different if you're in a, in a municipal location yeah. like this. What else about the east and west? Um, what does that do for your, for your wines? I know you don't have a vineyard of your own, right? Right. You, yeah. you buy from different vineyards. Yeah, so the way it started for me was when I first started making wine, I was kind of just I had been running labs in wineries for a few years and when you run the lab everything that happens in the winery goes through you mm -hmm. so whether you want to know how to make wine or not you accidentally learn so you know where the grapes came from fermentation time temperature every mistake every addition mm -hmm. you know everything and so you just kind of can't help but say why didn't they do that or I wonder what would happen if they did that so that's really how I started oh. And I just made a couple barrels one year. But a barrel is 25 cases. Wow. So a couple barrels is 50 cases. And if the next year you do a little bit more. So I ended up just building this business slowly like that. And the way it happens with grape sources for me was I tried some wines and thought, what do I want to make? I, I want to make something I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. So I looked at the labels and figured out where they got the grapes and called those people up and said, can I buy your grapes? <laughs> so I really didn't care where they were from at that point. I cared that I liked the wine that somebody else had made. Okay, sure, sure. So that's how I ended up using grapes from all over the place. Based on your palate, based on what you liked, but also with your background in the lab. I mean, you showed me the lab and it's great to look at, but I have no clue what you do in there. You know, wine labs typically are pretty primitive chemistry. So as I mentioned, I came from a hardcore research background where we were doing DNA analysis and mm -hmm. using equipment that nobody in a wine lab would ever even see probably. But there is a component of real research in the wine world mostly focused at places like UC Davis. Mm -hmm, sure. So once a year, 
There's a big academic meeting where all the new research is shared with colleagues. And I used to go to that, and I was very excited about when I first came into the wine world about working in research like that. But that's not what people in real wineries in the real world really do mm -hmm. most of the time. So if you think that wine has been being made successfully and deliciously for thousands of years mm -hmm. with no science, you can do that if you want to. You can know nothing. You may end up throwing out a lot of wine, mm -hmm. or you can just kind of do what your dad did. There are a lot of winemakers like that that really don't have any education. But I thought it would be interesting to really do it from a research point of view. So I came to it from that, but now that I have a small business and I have to clean the bathroom <laughs> and do the reporting to the government and all those kind of things, I don't really focus on doing any research. But your question was, what do you do in a lab? Yeah. So there's regular maintenance where you do things like SO2, sulfur dioxide. It's thought of as a preservative. So what it does is it prevents oxidation of wine mm. oh. and it also decreases bacterial growth. Mm -hmm. So most winemakers try to keep a steady level of SO2. And as soon as you add it to the wine, it starts working and it starts to disappear. Okay. And so that's one of the main things that wineries check regularly. And it's a pretty simple wet chemistry titration. It's not a very complicated thing to do at all. I don't know any of those terms because I took <laughs> biology and didn't yeah. even do that well. But yeah. someone is understanding what you're talking about. So that's one of the things. But then at harvest time, you look at things like sugar levels sure. and you watch the progress of the fermentation. Sure. Okay. There's an acid that mm -hmm. is automatically in grapes called malic acid. Mm -hmm. And mal means bad or negative in Spanish. So, uh, And it's also the acid in apples. Mm. So it's that sort of bitter acid that decreases with time and especially in the presence of a certain bacterium, mm. which converts it to lactic acid, which is a smoother, softer acid. So you watch things like that. You measure the progress in the lab. You know that then you're working on it becoming a balanced wine between the acid and the, and the sugar. Yeah, or you're watching its progress. So with a lot of white wines, you don't want that to happen. So for instance, the buttery Chardonnays, yeah have generally deliberately gone through a malolactic fermentation to turn that malic acid into lactic acid. Mm -hmm. But a lot of other wines, crisper, brighter, more sort of green apple kind mm -hmm. of wines, people don't want that to happen. So there are cool. certain things you can do in the winery to prevent or enhance those processes. So that creativity is science. Yeah, so science and creativity, you mentioned this before, yeah. and um, a long time ago, another world that I was in for a long time was the dance world. And I had been in a performance, and I was at a party afterwards talking to a guy who was a painter. And he said, oh, what kind of artist are you? This party is so exciting, there are all these artists here. And I thought... Well, I was on stage a little while ago, oh, and here you're talking to me, and you don't even realize it. Mm. So instead of saying, I'm a dancer, I said, I'm actually a scientist. And he did the sign of the cross vampire thing and went, <laughs> Whoa. And um, wow. I said, no, wait a second, you're an artist, right? I study biology, which is life. 
And if you didn't have a sense of your own mortality, what kind of artist would you be? I love this. So I think that the creativity required to be a good scientist is similar to the creativity required to be a good artist. Mm -hmm. And so, to me, the two are almost the same thing. I don't think there's a difference between art and science. I'm talking with Galena Thompson, the winemaker, owner, bathroom cleaner of Symbiosis <laughs> Wines in downtown Paso Robles. She and other women winemakers and restaurant owners are part of an amazing array of events this week called At Her Table, March 6th to March 12th, which is right now, this week, one of which is on aromas the other is this Beyond Basic, Breaking Doors and Ceilings. So you've told us about your background in microbiology and your love of wines, knowing which grapes you wanted to use to make wine with. But I wanted to bring in the fact that this week is sort of all about women. And another aside, how in 1978 maybe, I was one of the founders of an organization that still exists called uh, the Women's Network of San Luis Obispo County. There have been offshoots in Los Osos and South County, I don't know about up here. But one of the things we said at the time was, all right, women need to support each other in business. We need the role models, we need to you know, have this because the men have got all of those other things going. And we, we were so clear that we hope we don't need this. Mm-hmm. In 5, 10, 15, 20, 20, what is it? Almost 50 years 50 now. 50 years later and we still need it. We do. <laughs> we still need it. So we're still having programs like At Her Table that are highlighting the women in, I, is it fair to say, the hospitality industry? Or is this just wine and food? Yeah, so Michelle Barrera, who created At Her Table, she did not apparently originally start out with the plan of creating... A group for women. Mm. But someone put the seed in her mind, how many women businesses are there in San Luis County? Mm. And she thought, I don't know, 10 or whatever, I'm not sure. And so she started looking into it, and she realized there were hundreds. Yes. And so her thinking was, women have always fed the world. And mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. where the food and beverage industry comes from and why she focused on that. And for her, I think what happened was she realized there were so many women who could use support. And her organization actually does more than just create community. It's actually a nonprofit that provides services for people who have a medical emergency oh, or no kidding. a financial emergency or something like that. Yeah. So this week is just... It's a festival to celebrate and to really induce people to collaborate, which I think is what you were getting to with our Beyond Basic Breaking Ceilings and Doors workshop. Tell us about that. So there are two younger women that I know who are also independent wine producers who also make unusual wines. And so we decided to collaborate and do this roundtable discussion. So each of us is pouring two of our wines. Those women are Nancy Uyoa of Uyoa Cellars and Ari Spoto of Ariana Wines. Nancy's been in Paso for a few years, and she's got a whole big other story. She's a Latina winemaker, Mm. and so she's really breaking ceilings, breaking the mold. And Ari comes from a winemaking family up in Sacramento. Oh, okay. And she's got her fingers and toes in all kinds of different parts of the wine world. She works as a barrel salesman, and she also is involved in putting on events in the Central Coast. Okay. And then she also makes wine. Oh, okay. So the three of us are going to be talking about 
some of the experiences that we've had that have made us feel like we're able to be independent women or that make us feel like we have to be in order to succeed. I know that there's a lot of discussion about women's confidence and it starts as a child. It starts as when we're in elementary school, we don't raise our hand unless we're absolutely positive we know Mm -hmm. the answer. And the boys are up there going, da-da-da-da. I don't think it's just about confidence, though. I mean, there's definitely that idea that women need to learn that they can do whatever they want. But some of us, like me, my mother raised me to believe that I could be whatever I wanted. I could be the president if I wanted to. But there are a lot of constraints in the world. So the idea of the little engine that could it's a little bit deceiving because you can work yourself to death trying to fight all these things that you just can't overcome. So, you know, women still don't make nearly as much as men do for the same work. That's just one tiny example that finally men are realizing is actually true. And there are a lot of things that are much more subtle. You're going to be pretty much talking about what you all had to go through. We're going to try to avoid negative stories. We want people to see the wines that we have. There are going to be six wines offered that day. And we'll all be talking about some of the things that we've encountered and how we got around those barriers or lived with them. And I think also this is why we are all independent producers, because sometimes it's just too hard to Mm. work within a system. Mm. And if you're not part of the football team, it's just not going to work out. And this is a fun thing for me. I'm just realizing with this particular Beyond Basic workshop, because these women, I'm probably twice their age. Oh, So they don't know about so many things Mm -hmm. that happened before they were born. And it is kind of fun to get a chance to be the old one, as much as we hate the idea of aging. My concern is that some of those old things that we thought had been fixed and gone away They're are still back. There. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe they, they never, never left. They just never went away. You know, and yeah. that is so dang frustrating. So go to athertable.com to find out about a wide variety of events that are happening. Lena, I want to thank you. This has been fascinating. It's been so fun meeting you. So as the grape nut walks away from her interview with Glenna, I think of several more questions I wish I had thought to ask. So if you, like me, still have some questions, then go to athertable.com and we'll both go to that aromas class. Uh, thanks for joining us on the, uh, the grape nut. And if you don't make it to the workshop this weekend, join us next week on Issues and Ideas when Betsy Nash, the grape nut, explores some of the basics of the aromas of wine. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Up next, correspondent Tom Wilmer discovers the world of reclaimed wood, where trees destroyed by forest fires and windstorms live a second life as flooring, furniture, countertops, and more. I'm Sean O'Brien, owner of Pacific Coast Lumber. We're located in Paso Robles. We moved up to this location about two years ago from San Luis Obispo. Uh, The company was founded in 1996, and we're still going strong with the urban forest message reclaiming materials that would otherwise be going to the waste stream. Back up a little bit, how did this start for you? I went to college to be a software engineer. I was a software engineer for about 24 years, 25 years. Enjoyed the career. Uh, My wife had worked for the county of San Luis Obispo. It just wasn't feeding her soul, so she decided to do 
a new business on her own, doing she sheds that have reclaimed doors and windows. So she's founded a company called A Place to Grow. The goal was for me to join that company. You're going to help her to begin with. Yes, yeah, it was, it was more like, you know, I, I got her started a, a bit, building things on weekends and just, and I was going to join the company when it got big enough. She moved her business to a business park in San Luis Obispo, which happened to be next to Pacific Coast Lumber, uh, who Don Seawater had founded the company 20 years earlier. And he was ready to retire, and he kind of looked at us and said, hey, you know, the business models are pretty similar. You know, we do reclaimed doors and windows, wooden metal elements for these really beautiful artistic sheds. What Don Seawater was doing was reclaiming material that would otherwise go to the waste stream. Beautiful redwood trees, cypress trees, sycamore, pine, all the local trees. And it seemed to be very synergistic. So he said, hey, you know, maybe you guys ought to buy the mill. I'm like, ha, ha, ha. Little did I know. A couple years later, we'd end up buying the mill. And I didn't know much about milling at all. Don stayed on with me for about three months to get me up and running. And I find that it's a, it's a beautiful industry. It's got a lot of meaning. Going from a software engineer to running a lumber mill may seem like a pretty big stretch. But truthfully, I found that the way I solve problems as an engineer applies to solving problems at a mill. It's just a different form factor. I mean, we have equipment that breaks down. You have to incrementally fix that. You have to figure out what's wrong and, and fix those things. From a customer standpoint, with this, as a software engineer, I had customers who had problems and I would have to find solutions to those problems. Same here. A customer comes in and they have a problem of wanting a table. My solution is to find a slab and build a table that, that satisfies their needs. So it wasn't a big stretch for me psychologically to, to join on. And I thoroughly enjoy. What's interesting is I can actually touch my product. Software engineer, it's all in the ether. Well, what I love, the philosophy in that what you do is the antithesis of the criticism of lumber industry of clear-cutting yeah. for us. You don't go out and clear-cut stuff. You harvest down trees and carbon sequestration. So carbon sequestration is the notion of taking carbon that would be emitted into the atmosphere and impact greenhouse gases, climate change, global warming. And if you sequester that carbon, then they aren't going up in the atmosphere. So before Pacific Coast Lumber was founded in 1996, all this material that was being harvested, dead, dying disease, storm down trees, would either be chipped up as playground chips or used as firewood or just let decay. All of those products release the carbon into the atmosphere and they're up in, they're doing their um, greenhouse gas effect. By taking a, a log, a local log, an oak log, a, a walnut log, taking a slab out of that and making a table, you're taking all the carbon that's in that log and keeping it in its form. So it's sequestering the carbon for as long as that um, table, flooring, paneling, countertop exists. So that's, uh, we're really proud of that. In sourcing, a lot of your product comes from forest fires and from windfall that we just experienced here on the Central Coast. Getting a bunch of calls, and it's hard to uh, service all of those calls right now for downed oak trees, redwood trees, and things. But there's a lot of material that's available after this big storm we had here in California. Forest fires are also a big source of our material. Right in front of us are giant piles of huge redwoods that are all blackened on the outside. Where did those come from? They came out of the Castle Fire, which is a Camp Nelson area. I think that's northeast of Bakersfield up in the Sierra. That was a fire from a couple years ago. And that fire is responsible for killing 10% of the giant sequoias that are left in the world, which is a huge tragedy. But it was a pretty large fire up there. And of the trees that were damaged and weren't going to survive, but still had manageable material, 
they, they'll harvest those. And there was a, a trucker down in San Diego area that had a pile of them, and I get uh, truckloads when I need them. So these are burn-scarred logs that the carbon inside is perfect but the tree won't survive. So we're able to, actually able to make use of those things for lots of great projects. How does it work cost-wise when you go to a forest fire site? Do you have to pay them to haul away, or is it a kind of a net zero where you're doing a service? You no, know, I don't know how my supplier manages his effort. Likely he gets paid to haul the material out. Then he's got the spoils of that and I pay a dollar per board foot rate to get them hauled up here, and it works out well. I mean, we get some really good, beautiful, clean material, and he makes some money doing his business, so it works out well. And it's, it's, it's good for the environment to have this stuff stay as local as possible. Right here on the Central Coast, there's a real cool diversity of woods that you're able to source. So the, uh, the wealth of species locally here on the Central Coast that we have access to as you mentioned earlier, that there's other timber services that will clear-cut areas or harvest logs for their timber value. We don't do that at all. We'll take things that are stormed down, dead, dying disease, being lot cleared, or they're, they're damaging houses or sidewalks or things that have to come down. Those are a source of our materials. So There's a cedar tree in my yard, and it fell over, and I called you up. There's a fee for you to haul away? Yeah. It depends. I mean, if you've got a super spectacular cedar tree, a five-foot diameter guy, you know, we can figure something out, but generally speaking, when a redwood tree, a 30-inch diameter redwood tree that's coming down in somebody's yard, might say contribution, if you will, I help with the cost of hauling that away. If an arborist takes a tree down, they pay for the services there, and they also, the owner will pay the, the arborist to haul that material away and dispose of it. If I'm involved, I haul it for free and dispose of it for free. That saves the homeowner quite a bit. Yeah. It works out that I can actually use the material. I've got a great symbiotic relationship with lots of the uh, arborists here in the county. So it works out really well that way. Let's talk about end use. Like you said, people come in looking for a coffee table or whatever. I remember one time here you were doing a giant bar top out of a huge slab. Yeah, it was a, a large oak bar. It was probably about 15 feet long, about 5 inches thick. 24 inches wide and is live edge on both sides. So I had a little bit of a wiggle to it and then a couple branches grew out the top. It was like a little crotch area there. It was absolutely gorgeous. And where did that go? Here, here in Paso, actually, out east of town. So people were moving up here and turning a barn into a, a wedding venue for their daughter. And they had one of a nice bars, so they uh, commissioned me to do that. That was a lot of fun. We did resin fill in the voids and then did a, a clear resin pour over. The That's resin a, fill is super trendy now. It is. It's incredible. I like the look. Some of these guys use like cobalt blue and just these non-natural occurring colors that you don't find in wood and yet people love it. We have a couple of shelves in our shop right now that have the cobalt blue, kind of deep rich ocean blue we call it. Yeah. And it's actually really pretty uh, contrasting uh, the cypress material. It's a, it's a blonde orange color wood with some blue. We've done cedar with a red and an orange kind of show of like a fire color. And that's what people want. It's very artistic. I do have material of my own in my house. It has the resin in there, different colors. I have a beautiful olive table with a rich ocean blue fill. You'll be able to look at furniture and say, yeah, that was from the 2020s for sure. Uh, but I, I like it, and that's where we're at. Talk to us a little bit more about what's closest to your heart. Well, as far as the, the wood materials? Everything. You know, your world. About three years ago, there was a fire that took place in Shell Beach, just a little south of uh, San Luis Obispo. On a ranch, there's a large sycamore tree that came down. It's got a lot of nice movement to it. Sycamore is my most favorite wood with the grain colors and things. So we've, we've yet to mill that. It's still in my inventory, but that's that's the thing to, to get into. I'm, I'm really happy that we're able to harvest that, because otherwise that would have been chipped up, ground up, or actually 
Cal Fire was going to go out and burn all the extra wood in that field, which would have emitted all the carbons as we were talking about. So sycamore is my, my favorite wood, for sure. Fairly hard in its grain structure? Yeah, it is, and it dries nicely. If you can get it super dry, then it's super stable. I know with eucalyptus, in the early days of California, they thought these were going to be the new gold mine, and everybody was planning the eucalyptus across the state, and they thought it was going to be for railroad ties and for poles, and there's an obvious reason why that didn't work out. Talk to us about the downfall of that species. So eucalyptus, some of the arborists call it a weed here. It just grows crazy. It grows fast. There are great eucalyptus species, sub-varieties of those that can be good lumber material. But most of what they planted here are, I don't know, the, the types of you know, blue gum, some red gum, that uh, uh, do a lot of twisting. If you take a look at the bark structure on the outside of these trees, you'll see that the bark will do a little twist, like a helical shape. And what happens is when you mill those things, as they're drying, they will twist. They keep going. Yeah, so I think out in Montana de Oro, they planted, and you can see them, they're still in rows, probably 100 plus years ago, they planted eucalyptus trees to harvest for railroad ties. Well, they didn't look close enough to see that some eucalyptus species just aren't good for harvesting. So, I've spent time in Australia. That Part of the differential, you could take a blue gum in Australia and it's slower growing therefore more control because they have less rainfall. Where here, you know, so much more rain just makes it fast growing, bigger ring structure, therefore, anyway. Less stable, yeah, absolutely. So that didn't quite work out, the commercial enterprise of eucalyptus in California. Well, it, it, they're beautiful trees, and, and I think about looking at Montana Aurora without them, and it would be a different environment. I'm not interested in having them take them out for the purity's sake. I'm, they're trees, and they're growing, and they're fine. I remember at Morro Bay High School, they had windfall of cypress, and you harvest some of those, and then you wound up giving me a slab we donated to California State Parks, yep. and we made a sign at Morro Bay State Park out of that cypress from Morro Bay. That was a fun project for us as well. Yeah, we did get a lot of cypress from... Morbay High School. We got another round of it a few years later as well. That was an interesting project because we milled that wood for a structure at, for my wife's company, a place to grow. So the material came from Morbay High School and we built a structure and donated it to, I think it's Monarch Grove Elementary School in Los Osos. That elementary school feeds into Morbay High School. So it was a great experience to talk to the um, children at the elementary school about recycling material and that it came from the high school that they're going to go to, and it, it's this beautiful little structure. It was a fun project for all around. That's really cool. A little bit more about your world that you want to share. Well, we're working on, I'm part of a board for Urban Salvage Reclaim Wood Network. It was a CAL FIRE about five years ago or so, produced a grant that we were able to apply for and, and fund our nonprofit organization. And our goal is to promote urban salvage and reclaim materials. We wrote a standard and are right now doing beta testing on the standard, which will do a chain of custody for urban materials so we can be classified as bona fide urban material. So it isn't a clear cut. It isn't something from Oregon or from Georgia. This is from our local community. So we have a criteria that you get more points for the less traveled wood. So if, if I'm in Paso Robles, if I get an oak tree here, and part of that is like supply chain. Yes. By tracking the chain of custody, when somebody gets an end product that is urban salvage reclaimed certified, then you know that it, it, you can track where it came from. Oftentimes, we have pictures of the tree standing. You'll know who cut it down, who hauled it, who milled it, who dried it, and the whole process of, of the product. 
So the Urban Salvage and Reclaim Network was a California-based organization. There is an Urban Wood Network national network that we have become part of, and now our board is overseeing the whole western states. So we're uh, taking this standard nationally, and we're in the process of that. So I'm really happy about and proud of the effort of getting the word out about urban wood and how it's utilized. I'm getting calls uh, from people in the state to get urban wood. I'm getting calls from people out of the state wanting California urban wood because it's such a beautiful material. Redwoods and cypresses and sycamores that are really native and natural out here. So really happy that the word is getting out, that we're uh, in the process of making a standard that will be utilized. And for municipalities that want to be able to use reclaimed materials, the natural urban forested kind, with our um, a certification and they'll know that it's certified. We have a nice location up here in Paso Robles off of Paso Robles Street which is just off the exit. You can see you our have sign. like a showroom place for when people if they drive in what do they see? Well, I think primarily it's our work in progress in the shop. I do have uh, some slabs in a tent and we have slabs throughout the yard. We do have an Instagram page that can show some of the work that we've been doing. If you go to our website, pacificcoastlumber.com, there's links to our Facebook and Instagram accounts there and all of our contact and, and location information. So a lot of what we do are, are tables and mantles for end products, and it's based on the material we have here, or if you bring in material, we can work with that too. Years and years ago, I lived in British Columbia, and this was in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And what was very popular were guys would go to the mill and they would buy the coal live-edge wood for their siding yep. and you know 30 40 50 years later it's trending so virally it's crazy I've, uh, I've got a couple buildings on site here that have the live edge siding and that's a lot of fun. And explain live edge so a live edge siding is where you take a log and you just mill it in a board it's an inch thick or so and you leave the, uh, the outside edge you get, the bark will come off generally speaking but the outside edge has some waviness to it so it's it's considered quote-unquote live edge if there's a branch that was there where we're milling, there's a little stub that sticks out. That's kind of fun. So it's just kind of a natural edge, kind of a wavy, wavy pattern that you can put up, and it's got a little extra texture to it, if you will. So That's really cool. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've learned over the years of owning Pacific Coast Lumber is that if you're making end products, drying your material effectively is super important. You need to make sure it's dry so that it won't warp and move on you. So that's the thing that we have with a kiln, we can dry the material to the whatever moisture content you're looking for based on its use. That's a secret that I didn't know much about before I owned the mill. Now I'm pretty keyed in on making sure you have dry material. And the other interesting thing is avoiding the heart center of the green 2 by 4s or even 4 by 12s People wonder why did our 4 by 12 warp and rack and talk to us about that avoiding the heart center so the heart center is also called the pith so a, a tree has just a very first growth ring in the center it doesn't no, framers call it the bullseye <laughs> there you have it and it doesn't actually have to be the center it can be off based on the way the tree grows but if you look at a, a four by six beam right or a four by four some big piece of material if you see the growth rings kind of coming into a single point that's called the heart center. It's probably the most unstable part of a, of a log from being twisting and, and moving. If you get a higher grade of a beam, like a grade one or two, they, they'll be free of heart center, F-O-H-C. That's kind of the, the tag. So it'll be a much more stable structural piece of material that won't do the twisting as you're mentioning. And we try to avoid that in our slabs too because if we make a table that has a pith or the heart center, 
that's where the slab will have a little more movement and wonkiness. As a technical term, wonkiness you want to avoid. A lot of people do not know that some of the more evolved lumber yards where you order lumber, you can put in a request for FOHC. Correct, yes. Yeah, so a lot of the, the main commercial lumber mills, it's a higher grade and you pay more for it, for sure. When you come into Pacific Coast Lumber, we can pick out whatever materials we have and we will check the ends to see if there's a, a heart center that goes through your slab and uh, pick out a different one if you don't want that one. And talk about vertical grain for a moment. So vertical grain is a clear vertical grain, is like the highest end product you can have. And that's typically where the grain is going vertical relative to the board size. And it's a pretty view, you get to see all the, the grain lines in there and it's a most stable piece of material. Clear vertical grain means there's no knots coming through it. Strongest in many respects if, it's, it's if you put it vertical going up and down. Yeah, it's, it's strong and stable. So you can do flat sawn material which goes the other direction. So if you have a two by six, the grain lines are going along the six inch part, that's a flat sawn. If you have the grains going up and down in the one and a half inch or two inch side, that's a vertical grain. So that's, if you consider a, a log, if you do a round log, the vertical grain is going to be to the left and right of the heart center. The flat sawn is going to be above and below the heart center if you're just cutting them horizontally. Well, the popularity of urban forest milling is, especially in California and, and throughout the country, as more of these uh, urban wood network chapters come online, banding them together and creating a network will allow uh, smaller mills, even like myself here, I, I've got a large order that's potential. I'm, I'm contacting a bunch of my other colleagues in the same industry to see if they have a certain kind of oak that my client is looking for. So I can band us together and, and with several mills produce a big order for somebody. Because that'll help satisfy you know large commercial orders that a small mill can't do all of it by themselves. So this urban salvage reclaim network that was funded by Cal Fire, that now we've joined the Urban Wood Network, a national network. We're creating a network of all of these small mills to be a lot stronger and more capable to provide good commercial quality material. Where and who is your nearest competition? Deadwood Revival is a local company here in Paso Robles. They've been in existence for a while. They also got started with a Cal Fire grant recently. They're good guys. I like to work with them. We've done some collaboration. There's a couple other small mills that, that aren't full service. They'll, they'll just do some milling and, and things. There's a company down in Los Angeles, West Coast Arborist. There's Far West products up in Sheridan. Those are some big players in the industry. Where are you located? Paso Robles Street at 720. Paso Robles Street. We're right off the 101 freeway. We're the third building on the right when you take the exit heading north on 101. Our website is a great access for information. That's how most people out of the area will find us. The um, name is? The PacificCoastLumber.com. Yeah, that's too easy. There you go. It's all, all, all natural. Seeking out urban forest material and understanding that it's, it's local material that is carbon sequestering, good for the environment. We're having a client here drop off a bunch of oak logs from his property from this recent storm down. We're going to make flooring for him. Oh, wow, so that, cool. that's, We do a lot of custom milling of, of other people's material. My name is Sean O'Brien. And I'm Tom Wilmer. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.